Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. And so I'm writing a book about glue, but I'm stuck on the first chapter. What state is known for its little, small drinks? Minnesota, of course. Oh, you knew that one, right? That's good. Have you ever heard someone talk about something you knew they didn't know what they were saying? Hmm? Ever heard somebody talking and you're like, they're an idiot. <laughs> they just don't know what they're talking about. All right, this last Wednesday night, uh, I get to play guitar occasionally, and I was playing on Wednesday, and I was standing next to Danny DeJesus during practice. If you know anything about Danny, I learned what little I know on a four-string bass like this. Danny, of course, plays a five-string, which has the B string up above it, and, uh, and Pastor Garrett and he, they're talking about how to do some run, Pastor Garrett wants in the song, and I lean over to Danny, Danny and I say, I think what he's saying is do the... And I touch his guitar, and as soon as I touch his bass, I realize... I'm an idiot. I'm talking to Danny DeJesus, who knows more about bass in 30 seconds than I know in my entire lifetime. All right. I just stopped. I shut up and I said, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You got this, bro. Just so you know, I taught Danny how to play bass. I also taught Michael Jordan how to play basketball. Yeah, I taught Jimmy Johnson how to drive a race car. And I taught Gordon Ramsay how to cook. Just so you know. No, I'm an idiot when it comes to certain things, right? All right, years ago, it was the last election cycle. And uh, I got a YouTube, I was watching some YouTube shorts and stuff. And, and there was this kid on there who was, he was a, God bless him, good, probably a beautiful young child, teenager, and he, he got on this YouTube and he started telling me how I'd vote in the next election using history. The only problem with his little lesson in history is every fact had something wrong. Every story had something wrong in it. The date wasn't right. The person wasn't right. Where it happened wasn't right. Everything was wrong. Yet he was telling me how to vote based upon his splendid knowledge of history, which was wrong. Are y'all following me here? It's not like that doesn't happen now all the time. Be careful. If you don't learn the lessons of history properly, you are destined to repeat them. So, um, yeah, anyway, that being said, sometimes your views of Jesus are just as distorted as my view of teaching Danny DeJesus how to play the bass. Sometimes your view of Jesus is so wrong. If I had your view of Jesus, I would be an atheist too. Because your view of Jesus is so messed up, it isn't even close. And what I want to do, what we want to do, come on, I've, I've talked to people for years. I've witnessed to people for years. And one of the things I say to people when they're really super hard to me is I say, who's the most powerful, influential man who ever lived? And they'll have to admit it's Jesus. Right? Most influ Who else split time into A.D. and B.C., right? Yeah. yeah, every hospital in the world has Jesus as... 
You guys are, are the, the fact that women vote, thank you, Jesus. Anything you're talking about, like, thank you, Jesus, all right? Most influential person who ever lived. And I ask him a simple question. Have you ever read for yourself the words and works of Jesus? And I'm surprised the number of people that have never read the words and works of Jesus, yet claim to be intelligent people. Wouldn't you want to read the most, intelli- the, the most influential person who ever lived? Wouldn't you want to read for yourself the words and works of Jesus? That's the reason we're doing the study. That's the reason we're doing the video series. That's the reason we're preaching these messages is to get you acquainted with a proper view of Jesus so you don't look like me trying to teach Danny DeJesus how to play the bass and you, when you talk about Jesus, can actually make sense and not look like an idiot. Because I care about you not looking like an idiot. Right? All right. So there's always been debate over who Jesus is. And people always get it wrong. People have been known to get it wrong. As a matter of fact, there was a guy named Arius. Now, Arius was a teacher in Alexandria, Egypt. And in the year 318, he decided he was going to start teaching uh, what he believed about Jesus, that Jesus was not God, but Jesus was simply a creation of God. And Arianism became the first great heresy that the church had to fight against. Um, he said that Jesus was a created being and not God at all. And, um, you know, this still exists. Anybody ever have any Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door? Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a creation of God. And I'll show you in just a second one of the ways they have to twist Scripture to make it say what they want it to say because the Bible does not say what they want, so they have to make up stuff to make it say what they want, which is normally what happens when you've got your mind set up on a decision And then, anybody ever do this, arguing with your spouse, and you know you're right, so you make up facts that aren't 100% true? (laughs) I've never done that. (laughs) All right. It also exists in similar fashion today, this heresy, in Mormonism and Jesus-only teaching. And Jesus-only teaching, basically, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, basically say that Jesus is a creation of God or a manifestation of God and not God himself. Now, why does this matter? Because Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are three beings, but yet they are one, even though they are three. Now, I can't explain that to you, and if you say you understand it, you're lying. Um, By the way, can you understand how God spoke and the farthest universe came into existence? Can you understand that factually? Well, if you can't understand that, What makes you, if you can't understand a single work of God, what makes you think you can understand the very nature of a God that is greater than that? So there are some things about God we're not meant to understand, we're meant to accept. Did y'all follow what I said? There are some things about God you're not meant to understand, you're meant to accept. And when you accept it, then it keeps the, the mystery and the wonder and the pride alive. All right. So... All of this centers around something called the Nicene Creed. Now, before we get to the Nicene Creed, let me talk a little bit about the Council of Nicaea, which met in 325 AD. 
This is necessary because, remember, Arius in 3.18 had started proclaiming that Jesus was a creation of God and not God himself. So in 3.13, just a few years before, there was a guy named Constantine that conquered the Roman Empire. And Constantine then in 3.13 declared that Christianity would be the official language of Rome, which I am glad we live in a pluralistic culture, not a government-led religious culture, because as soon as the government takes control of worship, the government can lie and then force you to repeat it. So I love living in a pluralistic culture where the government does not control our worship. Well, it has started. Just think about the brainwashing that's happening in our schools, in our culture that tells you a guy can be a girl and a girl can be a guy. That, my friends, is religion, whether you want to recognize it or not. And, and that's going on. All right, so that being said, 313 AD, the Roman government said Christianity is the official language, our official religion. 318, a guy starts doing this false teaching. 325, Constantine calls together a council of the bishops and says, hey guys, Find a way to make peace among yourselves. These schisms are, are damaging my kingdom. Are y'all following what Constantine was saying? Constantine gathered them together, was at their first meeting, walked away. That's the facts of the council. Unfortunately, there's some guys like, did anybody watch the Da Vinci Code? Read the book, anybody? I read the book and watched the movie. All right, the Da Vinci Code, what they said, and I hear this repeated all the time, so I'm giving you guys a history lesson here. You're going to hear repeated that it was the Council of Nicaea, the church that wrote the Bible. No, it wasn't. The scriptures were written 300 years earlier. The Council of Nicaea actually didn't make a single decision about what books were included in the Bible. So the canon was not set by the Council of Nicaea. They were still debating Revelation and Judith. Judith didn't get included in the canon. Revelation did. And they were still debating that at the Council of Nicaea. So anybody that tells you the Council of Nicaea determined what books are in the Bible, they just lied to you because they don't know their history. Very simple. Do you know, though, why that lie came about and why a guy like Dan Brown wrote in the Da Vinci Code that it was the Council of Nicaea that determined what books were in the Bible? I'll tell you why. Because in the 9th century... Around 850 to 870 A.D., a, a, a monk wrote a, a letter called Sidonia, Sidonicon Vetus. And this is what he wrote. The council made manifest the canonical and apocryphal books in the following manner, placing them, all these rolls of the different books, placing them side by side on the divine table in the house of God. They prayed, entreating the Lord that divinely inspired books might be found upon the table and the spurious ones underneath. And so it happened. Guys, 500 years after the meeting, some guy makes up a fairy tale saying that God decided by putting the books that shouldn't be included under the table. 500 years. So the reason I'm telling you this is I'm telling you how Dan Brown wrote his book. He took some spurious account 500 years after the fact that was a myth and a makeup story and he applied it and made it factual. That's why history matters. So what did these leaders do? By the way, by the way, one other thing about this. And I'm sorry if I go too long today, bear with this. The guys who were called to the Nicene Council, they, most of them, 
had already suffered persecution and bore scars on their body because they were rebelling against, they had been persecuted before Constantine took office because one of the most difficult persecutions against Christians happened right before Constantine won the battle and took over the Roman Empire. Do you know what that means? The guys at the council hadn't obeyed Rome when they got their scars. What makes you think all of a sudden they're going to start obeying Rome now? So if you think these guys that wrote the Nicene Council, wrote the creed, we're going to read in a second. If you think they were controlled by the government, then you don't understand how a guy is that'll have scars on his back from being beaten. You don't understand that he's not going to bow down in the future either. Why does all this matter? Because out of this council, they wrote a creed. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to read it today. One, one thing before, before we actually read the words of this creed, we're going to come across the word Catholic in it. And I want you to understand, this is before the Roman Catholic Church was the Roman Catholic Church, so the word Catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholic the way you view it. Catholic means simply universal or the church around the world, that we are participants in the church around the world, not just your local church. And there's a guy in town, I know he's a pastor, that he believes his church is the only church. And I'm like, you are a world-class idiot. Because you think you're the only ones going to heaven in all of the world. (laughs) Come on. God gave the Bible just so you could know. How small-minded is that? Think about it. So the word Catholic means... All the churches, like the churches in Nicaragua we were at, the churches that are in communist uh, China, the churches that are operating in Brazil under the power of the Holy Spirit today. All right, so that's what Catholic means. Everybody understand that? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this together out loud. And I don't care whether you feel awkward or not. Read it together out loud with us. We're going to do it together. I'm going to go slow so you can join me. First service, I goofed up on some of it. So if you goof up, you're just like me, right? All right, here we go. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in the holy Catholic church. Oh, apostolic church. There, I did it again. Let's do this again. I believe in the one holy and apostolic church. I (laughs) believe. Can we do this right? I'd like to say this right just once. 
I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and of the life of the world to come forever. Amen. All right, we got that mostly right. Do you know what you just did? Do you know what you did? You repeated a creed that the church has been saying for 1,700 years. You aligned yourself with the holy church of God through centuries, different countries, different people, groups, languages. You aligned yourself with the belief in Jesus. Did y'all see that there? I believe in the Father. I believe in the Son. A lot of information about the Son. We'll come back to it. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the church. You know, some of you should probably read this and spend some time with it. A couple of you might even memorize it. It'd be really great for you. I think it's cool that we get to participate with ages and generations gone by. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this creed that was given to us by the church. The, the Bible says that there, the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. And, and we identify with the church that you have passed along to us and the truth and the fights that were fought in the past. So we don't have to repeat the same fights. We can learn that, Jesus, you are very God of very God, light of light. We know that you are coming from the Father, begotten, not made. You, it's a relationship. It's not... The begotten doesn't mean you were created. It means you were begotten, not made. You came from God's heart, not, not from his creation. And we thank you for all these truths that they, they took so much emphasis to point out to us. Let us learn from them and let us embrace them, we pray. Amen. Amen. For your seated, why don't you turn to somebody, give them a big high five and a smile. Tell them it's good to see them in church. High five online. All right, here's what we're going to do. I have seven minutes to preach an entire sermon. Y'all ready? Seatbelts on, here we go. I'm going to give you three scriptures, three passages of scriptures that talk about the deity of Jesus, and I'm going to do this fast. Number one, John's prologue. John's prologue is the beginning of the book of John. And uh, when John went to write his doctrine, his theology down, he wrote started with this beginning, in the beginning. Anybody ever heard the words in the beginning in the Bible before? Yes, where did you hear them? Genesis 1-1, so John is like rewriting and he's saying, hey, this was Yahweh, God, now let's talk about this. And so he is hearkening to acknowledging that Yahweh in the beginning was the word. Now the problem with the word is you don't understand word. Word does not mean Bible. If you believe that, it's a wrong view. Word logos literally was a pagan view of God. It, it was a pagan view that, um, well, let me put it this way. Word was like the power that all the gods did their power through. So it would be like, those of you that are geeks will understand this. May the force be with you. When I say force, you understand what Star Wars paints the power of the force, dark and light. Anyway, that was more what the word meant to the original readers. So what John is doing is he's saying, Yahweh and your view of God, let's talk about it. This is cool. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
Now, what the Jehovah's Witnesses do there is they, they added to this and they put, if they, you open up their Bible, it's going to say the word was a God. We'll come around that in just a second. I'll talk to you. But I think it's funny how they have to edit the text to make it say something than what it says. Because it very clearly says that the word was what? God. He was with God in the beginning. So, all right, this is the beginning. Uh, through him, all things were made. By the way, who is the creator of all things? God is the creator of all things. And yet, all through the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So every creation, everything that has been made, spiritual and on earth, was made by the word. Uh, and then it says, in him was life. Who is the giver of life? God Almighty is the giver of life. And that life was the light of all mankind. By the way, God is light is a direct quote from Scripture. So what's going on here? John is making it very, very clear that who he's talking about, this word is, has all the nature and characteristics and actions of God. All right? So uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, let's go back to the word was God. So can you put up my CNIV? Those of you that don't know what a CNIV is, it's the Crow's Nearly Inspired Version. So what I do is I read the Greek and then I translate it and I write it out for us. And uh, when I read the Greek, uh, there's a definite article there. And definite article never means a, it always means the. Definite article is the. And it, in the Greek, it's intentional. And what that verse literally says, and God was the word, the word. There's intentionality there. God and the word are one and the same. So what John is doing is now he's going to drop a bomb. All right, we'll talk to you. Your view of God, if you're Jewish or if you're pagan, your view of God, let's look at verse 12. Uh, verse 14, sorry. The word became flesh. Now he's going to talk to us about Jesus. God himself became flesh and made his dwelling among us. All right, that's number one. Let's go to text number two because I'm moving quick. Text number two is the transfiguration. So this is the only time when Jesus, in his human form, reveals the glory that he had with God before the worlds began. So there's a lot to this story. Who's in this story? First of all, let's talk about it. It's up on a mountain, right? Mount Hermon. They're on Mount Hermon. And by the way, where did Moses receive the law? On a mountain. Yeah, all right. And who's going to show up? Moses is going to show up with Jesus and Elijah. Who is Elijah? Well, Moses was the giver of the law. Elijah was the first of the prophets. And Elijah the pro represents the prophets. So the law and the prophets are represented there with Jesus. And God Almighty is there. God the Father is there. And he's going to speak. And let's look at the story. So uh, before we get to that, at the transfiguration, the veil of humanity succumbs to the nature of Jesus' deity. What that means is Jesus lived with the veil of humanity over him. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, that, remember, hearkening back to Moses, remember when Moses was on the mountain, he received the law, he came down and his face was shining with the light and the brightness and the glory of God. And the people were like, dude, we can't handle your brightness. Put a veil over it. So what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration, even clothes, the veil Jesus is wearing over his body, are going to be transformed. Because nothing can hide the light that Jesus is. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with them Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured. And that transfiguration, the Greek word is metamorphe, morphothe, 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 
metamorpho thing. All right? I've got to work on my Greek every time I can. The, he was transfigured before them. And what happened? His face shone like the sun, like on the mountain originally when Moses was in the presence of God, except it wasn't Jesus' face reflecting God's glory. It was the glory of Jesus starting to come out of him. God himself started coming out. And his clothes, his glory so great that even his clothes, the veil that hid him, were transfigured into the presence of whiteness. So uh, that's what happens there. Uh, notice that his clothing was changed from the inside out, not from the outside in. All right? Uh, Matthew's recounting, that's what happened. Mark's recounting. This is Mark's story. We're going to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke because the story's in all three. And Mark, uh, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, led up a high mountain where they were all alone. He was transfigured before him. There's that word again. His clothes became dazzling white. Notice the Peterisms. All right, here's the deal. The book of Mark is written under, Peter was the one giving direction to Mark to write the book. Uh, church history and the church fathers record that they'd ask Peter to share all the stories that he knew, and, and Mark wrote them down. So when Mark is writing down the stories in the gospel, he's using Peter's words, and Peter is talking through them. And how I know that is, because this is the only place that says wider than anyone could bleach them. That gives you insight into the mind of Peter. And I'm going to show you one more time in just a second, but think about this, this is how Peter thinks. Dude, that's whiter than mom bleached my clothes. All right. Just. All right. You don't believe me? Well, let's go on. Um, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter, notice it's Peter that talks up now. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. You notice what Peter's doing. He's saying, I was an idiot. I didn't know what to say. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Danny DeHace who's playing the bass, and I don't even understand what a chord is, and I'm going to tell him how to play the bass. I'm watching Jimmy Johnson drive a, get a, a, a car, and I can't shift. A, but yet, I'm going to tell him what to do. I'm, I see Jesus show up, and I'm going to say, hey, I got an idea. <laughs> so that's Peter. By the way, he didn't know what to say. He was, he was so overwhelmed. Can we, can we give Peter a break, though? I'll tell you a little story, all right? I shouldn't, shouldn't tell you, but I'll take the time to do it anyway. It was, uh, it was a long time ago. I was having a really rough time. One time in my life, I was really in the pit of depression. I was actually, at this moment in my life, I was thinking suicidal thoughts. I'm at a, a camp, big prairie campground, and at this camp, I'm at the altar. It's the end of service. And by the way, if you want to find out how to get over things in your life, run to God, not away from God. Because what happened that night is when the altar call happened, I went to the altar and I said, God, I just can't handle this. I'm overwhelmed. I said, uh, could you, uh, it'd be all right if you just showed me who you are. And immediately I had a vision. I've had two visions in my life and this vision, I was there and it was, it was, like, um, it was like Niagara Falls I went up there one time in the middle of winter and there was, you know, the snowy, icy water was pouring over and they had the lights, bright white lights shining on Niagara Falls that was pouring over the edge. It was something like that I saw, except it was smoke. And smoke was billing over the edge of a ledge and it was just brilliant, bright white light. And it was a half a second that I saw this incredible bright white light in these clouds flowing over the edge. And as that's happening, I immediately fall to my face and say, God, don't kill me. I have no idea why I said that. I was thinking suicide thoughts 10 minutes earlier and now I'm saying don't kill me you know you know what happened though I encountered God and I didn't know what to do and when I encountered God I didn't know what to do you know what I did after that I spent a long time sucking carpet there was a puddle on the ground you know because if it, you know you know how you get your mind right you know how you get your heart right 
Get in the presence of God and let that light and let that freedom wash over you and it'll change you. And some of you, the reason you're still struggling with the same problems over and over and over again is you're going to everybody in the world and talking to everybody in the world instead of the one that can heal you. And you need to spend some carpet time sucking carpet, talking to God and let him reveal how to change your heart. So what happened was the next morning, let's tell you how real the story was. I was on the toilet because it's the only place I could find peace at Big Prairie. And I opened up my Bible, and I think it was Psalm 86, and I opened up the Bible, and this is what I read. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advance. That was exactly what I saw the day before. The scripture confirmed that I didn't even see God. I got somewhere near where he was, and I couldn't handle it. I imagine Peter probably felt the same way, and that's why he said something stupid, is he didn't know what to do. All right, let's go. Uh, third, We've, oh, by the way, I wonder if it had an impact on Peter. Yeah, about 30 years later, he writes this. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came, uh, uh, voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. That's the voice they heard while they were on the mountain. Peter's life was changed that day. All right. Luke's recounting of the transfiguration. About eight days after Jesus said this. He took Peter, John, and James with him up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. It's the only one that mentions the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Notice the descriptive nature. Another one was saying, whiter than bleach. Luke says, a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking to Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, listen to this, listen. Why are we fasting and praying? I'm telling you why we're fasting and praying, because some of you are asleep. Some of you are asleep in your faith, and as soon as you do this very thing, you wake yourselves up, you will see his glory. You got to wake up before you see his glory. They were very sleepy, but when they became awake, they were seeing his glory. And some of us, the reason we don't see God's glory is we never wake up. That's why I say fast and pray. Do without food. I don't know about you. I was awake at 6.15 this morning. My stomach was rumbling because I'm hungry. Anybody else doing without food? I'm like, I'm not supposed to lose this much weight in a week. I'm hungry. Fasting's too difficult. Well, then you'll, come on. You can do it for 14 days. There's 14 days left. Give up a meal. Try it. Give up whatever it is you reach for 40 times a day. Be it your iPad or your social media or your pop. Whatever it is that you reach for every day. And when you give that up, let every inclination and desire bring you to an awakeness where your heart is open to Jesus Christ. All right. All right. Final. Christ him. I got two minutes Y'all ready for this? Christ him. Um, Paul is 80-60. Paul is in prison. He's writing the prison epistles. He writes a letter to the Philippians. Now, it is AD 60. He is about to die. He is in prison. Maybe this is his um, uh, imprisonment in Rome, which is probably the way it, it, it leans. He was in house prison in Rome before he was thrown in Mamertine prison. And here he is, Paul in prison. And he writes this letter, and in this letter, he quotes a hymn that has been taught by the church since he visited them in A.D. 48, I believe it is. So this, this hymn is really old. 
And Paul writes it knowing that they're going to know the hymn. And he does this interpolation. I'm not going to get into all that. But he does something to get their attention using this hymn. But what I want to quote for you is the hymn. In Philippians 2, 6, it says, Who, speaking of Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, his very nature is God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So I did a C and IV on this. So I went back, I read the Greek, and I looked up all, I looked, did a lot of research on the words. And uh, here's what I came up. Who, which being in the form God, morphe is the Greek word there. And it means literally the very nature of or the very substance of. So Jesus being in very nature, very substance God, did not reason that it was good to take from God his own equality. And there's a weird word there. The reason I use this translation, it's booty. He wasn't going to take his nature from God when he came to earth to be a man Instead, he did something, and the very next verse says that he kenosis it, or he laid aside his nature to take on a different nature. So the very next verse from the NIV says, rather he made himself nothing. So he, he took off that nature, and he took on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The CNIV says, but he emptied, or kenosis, he emptied himself. He took off, that's, that's not morphe there, that's kenosis. He took off the very nature when he emptied himself, and he took on the very nature of a servant. So he emptied himself. I don't know how he did this. How did God take off the nature of God to put on the nature of man? And there have been debates over what kenosis means throughout church history. But when I was reading on it, I came across this quote I thought was really good. The consensus from Pauline studies is that the form of God and the form of a slave, he took off the form of God to replace it with the form of a slave, point not to mere surface appearance, but to his authentic existence as God and human. Somehow Jesus was both God and human. And that's what this ancient hymn, this early hymn of the church, was calling Jesus God. And somehow his godness he took off to take on the form of us lowly people. That is, the self-emptying is not to be seen as a divestment of deity. On the contrary, it is an expression of deity. Jesus is able to take off the nature of God because he is God, and the act of incarnation is an elegant expression of what God can do that is otherwise to us incomprehensible. So Jesus did something here that is beyond our understanding. And last of all, as N.T. Wright said, the preexistent son regarded equality with God, not as excusing him from the task of redemption and suffering and death, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for it. So I'm going to share a story for you, and I'm going to come down here to share it because we're going to celebrate communion in a second. Communion's perfect explanation of what we're going to do today. So what, what happened was Jesus was God. He took off the workings of his deity and came a man like me and you, tempted in every point as we are yet without sin. He didn't have to do that. Why did he do it? Well, I, I, don't know, I learned this lesson this past week when we were in, uh, not this week, but the week before when we were in Nicaragua. See, when we showed up, there's a guy named Pedro. Well, let me just put it this way. It took 30 Americans, rich, white, privileged Americans, to a place where they make $8 a day. I don't think you got that. $8 a day. Minimum wage is eight, nearly $8 an hour. And they're making $8 a day. 
And these guys are providing for entire families off of $8 a day. So when we walk onto that site, bunch of gringos, we show up, we weren't very well received by the local workers. You know why they didn't receive us well? I wouldn't have received them well. What are these people coming down here? What do they think they're going to do? Come on, you can get the attitude right. All right. We make $8 a day. How much money did they pay to fly here to do this? So we get there, and um, there was a guy named Pedro there. Pedro, uh, he weighed about 135 pounds, sopping and wet. And what he did all day, every day, was he would pick up 80-pound bags of concrete weighing 135 pounds, throw on his shoulder, dump it into the concrete mixer. And he, he was the concrete mixer guy. He would take, you know, the 70-pound buckets of uh, of stone and dump it in and the 50 pound or 60 pound buckets of sand and dump it in all day long. That's what he did. And uh, he's a tough guy, 135 pounds dripping wet. And uh, when we showed up, they didn't like us very much. And I'm not even sure they wanted us on the site. But you know what we did? We went to work. We showed up, we went to work. Uh, we, were, we, we were given a job, basically, of digging trenches, where I spent most of my time. There were other people who did different stuff. I spent my time in the trenches. We were supposed to dig five-foot-deep trenches. Most of them were about three to four feet wide. And uh, Chad kept hitting me with things just to make my life more miserable. And uh, i tell you what you do. I, I took a spud bar. Do you know what a spud bar is? It's about a 40-pound bar of steel with a point on the end, and I would take that spud bar and I would slam it into the ground. What they had done is they had taken clay uh, to try to build a foundation on the site. They had taken clay and they had ran a sheep's foot over it, watered it down, packed it down, and it was like hitting this concrete with that spud bar. Literally, you could get that much out of a full slam of that spud bar into the ground. And, and it was rough, and my hands developed blisters in places I didn't know blisters could exist. And it was tough work. And, you know, I look around, and every other person on our team, we're doing the same thing. Everybody's working. We just jumped in. We grabbed buckets, started dumping it in. We'd grab Pedro. He wasn't throwing his concrete in anymore because we had, you know, we had people like, uh, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Sean, I look over one day, and Sean's face is covered with concrete. It's like pasted because he'd been dumping concrete in all day. And, and we worked beside them for a few days. And these guys, what happened to them is they softened up. And one day we're in the ditches and we're just digging. I'm digging along and somebody yells, they brought a backhoe. Don't know what a backhoe is, right? It's a thing that digs ditches. What are we doing? Digging ditches with pickaxes and shovels. Shovels, by the way, that when you'd stick them in and go, anyway. (laughs) Anyway, all that to say, it was rough. It was hard work. And I looked up and I thought to myself, what would have happened? Come on, what would have happened if we would have sent a backhoe to Nicaragua? Because we paid more than enough to rent a backhoe for an entire week. With the amount of money we paid, we could have rented a backhoe for the entire construction site. It would have been real easy to dig those ditches with a backhoe when on a third of the money that we took to go down there. Probably, are y'all following me? Do you know what happened at the end of the week? Look at the smile on his face. It was the last day of the week. We'd been working with these guys. And Pedro was the last one to leave. He's all cleaned up. And I had a couple of pictures sent to me. I didn't have time to download them. But Pedro's walking off the site. We're like, see you, Pedro. And there were 15 of us left, the last bus, and turned around. Pedro's got big old crocodile tears running out of his eyes. And we had several guys have to run up and give him another big hug before he could leave the site. And you know why? I, I ask you a question. If we'd send a backhoe, 
Would Pedro be smiling like that? Would their hearts have been open to the Jesus we shared with them? No. Because here's the deal. I don't care what ditch you're in. I don't care how deep the trench is, how hard the digging is, how hard your life is. I don't care where you're at in that process, where you are or what you're going through. If you're in that ditch, Jesus didn't just stay in heaven and tell you, I'll send a backhoe to dig for you. He came down, got in the pit with you and delivered you from that pit. And that is the message of the gospel. That you're Jesus. Being fully God, took upon your nature, got into your pit with you to dig with you, to let you know that he loves you, he cares for you. And he knows how to help you make a real life out of what you've got. So I want you to bow your heads with me. I ask you a question. Have you made Jesus your Lord? I'm not talking about your Savior. Come on. I'm tired of people praying a prayer and then walking out the door and not letting Jesus in your life. I'm talking about you letting him in your life. It's your day to let him in the pit with you. If it's you today that you need Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, I want you to raise your hand. I want to pray with you right now. Go ahead. Raise your hand, right? Yes. Yes. There are others? Yes. Around this room. Anybody else? Come on. Yes. Yes. Everybody prays out loud. Nobody prays alone here, okay? Everybody together. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming to earth, taking off your power, and accepting our weakness so you could redeem us. I now receive you as my Lord. Take all my life. I give it to you. Now give me yours. Thank you. Amen. If you said that, you believe that, you meant that, guess what just happened? Jesus got in the ditch, held out his hand, and pulled your butt up out of that ditch. You don't have to live in it anymore. You're free. You're free. In the name of Jesus, you're free. All right, we're going to receive communion together. We're going to go old school today, so our ushers are coming forward. I'm going to explain what's going to happen.